people are watching. That is a warning to not let your kids end up on the magic island. I knew it all along. Advice on how to masturbate less. It tickles the imagination. God is a supercomputer. Is this bullshit? Welcome to the Irrational Discourse Podcast. This episode, we are going to discuss existential threats. That's right. I'm Doug Sherman, the co-host, and I'm with Chris. Hey, hey, guys. I'm just the abstract guy to bounce ideas off of. Well, we love the abstract because it kicks my ass off this proverbial soapbox (laughs) from time to time. (laughs) Oh, I love it. We have discussed existential threats off and on. I think this is one of the episodes that we were kind of looking forward to along with conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah. A little less controversial, again, than the Second Amendment. The 27 words. 27 words and the God episodes. But there's still a little bit of controversy in these. And you know, we're, we're just going to try to address this topic as best as possible from a rational, well-reasoned point of view. And I can say that when it comes to existential threats, I always err on the side of caution over that of politics or ideology. Oh, sure. Yeah, probably a good idea. Yeah, it's thought-provoking, not necessarily emotionally provoking. It was a little bit emotionally provoking for me because I, I started really digging into this. We're all interested in, to some extent, if we like sci-fi or action-adventure movies and existential threats such as Armageddon yeah, or... Yeah, if a meteor comes and falls, you know, from the sky on us, you know, from outside of our solar system. Or The Walking Dead or The Book of Eli or, you know, nuclear holocaust or a plague of some kind that, that wipes out most or all of humanity. Mm-hmm. But most of those are from a science fiction aspect. And when I really started digging into this, into a little bit more detail becomes more depressing because you're you're reading it from a real-world perspective. Yeah, it's not just in the movies now. It's something that the idea doesn't come from a place of fiction. It comes from a place of reality. Yeah, it's not a form of entertainment anymore. Yeah. We mentioned in, which episode was it where we were talking about, oh, it was the, the, the Genesis episode when we were talking about, uh, are we living in a simulation? And I, I mentioned Nick Bostrom. He's the Swedish philosopher. I actually think during that episode I called him a physicist, but he's he's not a physicist. Um, maybe I didn't, but I think I may have. He's a, a philosopher um, at Oxford. Nice. And Nick started the Future of Humanity Institute. Oh, uh, yes. Okay, this guy. Yeah, yeah, back in 2005. Yeah, there's the Futures of Humanity Institute in the UK, or is that the one that's in the U.S.? So the Future of Humanities Institute is based out of the UK. Okay. And then there's the Future of Life Institute, That's which is based out of primarily out of the US. Now, when you get into the science community, geography doesn't necessarily mean as much because True. you end up with scientists and biologists, physicists from all over the world at one location. You just happen to be in the UK or you just happen to be based out of the United States. So... So there were two primary sources as we get into the introduction to existential threats that I that I utilized. And of course, Nick Bostrom was one of those. There was another one, a gentleman by the name of Toby Ord, who is also at Oxford. He's a senior research fellow in philosophy and also was the former advisor to the World Health Organization and to the UK Prime Minister's Office and the Cabinet Office. And I stumbled across Toby because I'm reading one of his books called The Precipice. The Precipice. Ooh, okay. Yeah, and The Precipice basically covers the history and the the future of humanity with regard to existential threats. Now, I'm going to bounce a little bit to sci-fi here real quick. That reminds me of The Day the Earth Stood Still, mm. the Precipice <clears throat> conversation that uh, they had with the alien that came down, Klata or whatever. Yes, <laughs> yeah. They were saying, you know, because the alien that came down was trying to stop humanity from destroying itself, but they brought up, this is our moment, this is our precipice, you know, how did you guys figure out how to go beyond your problems and raise to a higher civilization? And that was ultimately what got the alien to stop destroying humanity was that conversation with that guy 
saying that this was their precipice moment. Yeah, I think in the movie it was John Cleese and he was a mathematician. Or yes, something. yeah, in and the newer version, yeah. In the newer version, <laughs> yeah, not, not in the original, which, yeah. which I like the original better, but the newer one was a little entertaining, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> so vaguely paraphrasing Toby Orb, what we should consider is that today humanity has reached a state of social and technological advancement that was beyond the wildest dream of our ancestors. And at our current rate, we will soon, and we don't have a date, but exponential increase in technological advancements, we will soon achieve social and technological advancements that are beyond the comprehension of most of us in society today. Sure. Yeah. I think we're pretty close to that if we're not there already. And our understanding of the, of the human mind and the body grows exponentially improvements in medicine and technology may lead to the complete eradication of diseases and psychological illnesses. Mm -hmm. Advanced genetic research might one day lead to the elimination of things such as birth defects and in the ability to enhance biological functions and possibly extend biological life by hundreds, if not thousands of years. I heard one hypothesis from a, a geneticist who surmised that it is possible that the first person who will live forever is alive today. Oh, wow. Imagine that. They might be <laughs> an infant. They might be 10 years old. You know, don't know who's going to win that lottery. <laughs> and will they tell their friends? <laughs> <laughs> and the neurological mapping and continued progress in computer science will, and again, before long, allow us to create digital systems with levels of intelligence and reasoning far beyond the capabilities of the human brain. Yeah, I mean, there's only so much RAM, right? There's only so much random access memory that the human brain can have access to in any given moment. But a supercomputer could do calculations like crazy. And, I've had this yeah. conversation with others before, and I think you and I have had it, and I'm not sure we're aligned, um, but it doesn't matter because we don't know if the human brain is even capable of completely understanding all of the things that we have yet to learn about the nature of the universe. Sure. Yeah. Could we even perceive it? <laughs> right. Because it doesn't matter how smart a chimpanzee is, for you know, example, you're never going to be able to teach it to speak French. Sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so there are, you know, there are biological limitations, but we are in the dawning ages of being able to overcome those limitations with digital technology. And whether it's something like Neuralink, like Elon Musk right. working on to where it, we can embed chips into our brains to access data much faster and or whether it's going to be external AI. Wouldn't it be funny, you know, we go into like a, a future where, you know, we bond with technology and ascend to this like level of intelligence where we humans become like godlike or something. But then like on the evolutionary train, so do like dogs and chimpanzees and cats they ascend to but to the level of like humans and they have like civilizations and it's all still happening but it's just taken on a different form <laughs> i mean maybe i don't we know we don't know <laughs> yeah. it, that would be a great rick and morty yes <laughs> <laughs> but humanity is also on the precipice yes the precipice a cliff's edge where one slip could bring about the end of humanity or the permanent destruction of civilization to wherein all of the possible achievements that I just mentioned are completely beyond reach. Mm. And that is the scary part. And that is where we get into existential risk studies. Yeah, that's, it makes me think of like, um, let's see, I, I wish I could remember where some of these ideas were coming from, some of my genesis of thought, but it's kind of like, and maybe you can help me here, there's like these evolutionary barriers or these barriers of a civilization that they have to evolve beyond these existential lines. It's called the Great Filter. The Great Filter. Yes. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. There. Right. Yeah. And that kind of spawned out of the uh, Fermi paradox uh, where Enrico Fermi and his colleagues were having lunch one day and they had been not heatedly debating, but randomly discussing the possibility on extraterrestrial life on other planets and blah, 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 and how it's probably more and more likely as we're discovering more stars in our own galaxy and more galaxies uh, in interstellar space. And it was just you know, by factors of 10 increasing 
the number of possible planets that are in the habitable zone and blah, blah, blah. And then they sat down for lunch and everybody got quiet. And the Fermi par- that's where the Fermi paradox came from. Enrico Fermi basically said, well, where are they? Right. Yeah. If there's, if the numbers keep going up and up and up with the possibilities, how come we haven't seen them yet or correct made contact? And then, then the conversation that segued from that later was the great filter. Mm -hmm. Is there a great filter or have we passed the great filter or are we approaching it? Is there this barrier to where any sufficiently advanced civilization at some point renders itself incapable of moving or progressing forward further, or do they destroy themselves in the process? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the importance of sharing information. You know, what happens if you know you create some sophisticated system based off of sorting algorithms that you know make life better and can solve all of humanity's problems, but then those people die off, the ones that programmed those programs, and they didn't teach anybody how to maintain them, and then they kind of just go off on their own and keep functioning until either they their batteries run out or... The galactic power outage. The galactic power outage, or maybe somebody magically figures out how to do it because they're just interested, but what if there's fail-safes to them too and, you know, they didn't know the code and they accidentally exploded or... My God, it can get crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there, there was a quote by Carl Sagan that I like, and he said, we've arranged, we've arranged a society on science and technology in which nobody understands anything about science and technology. <laughs> and this combustible mixture of ignorance and power is sooner or later going to blow up in all of our faces. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I mean, isn't so, that what happened to the pyramids? <laughs> So prior to the 20th century, you know, if we, if we look at existential threats and there's different, we can look at internal threats and external threats. So I, I kind of started off looking at internal threats where, where, okay. where we have control or theoretically we have control yeah. over our futures and what we do or don't do to ourselves in the process. And with, with regards to mass human extinction, mm-hmm. prior to the 20th century, we had a 0% chance of being able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't have the A-bomb yet. Didn't really understand. Didn't have a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the most of the world in the 19th century and beyond was, you know, and earlier was an agricultural community yeah. and with an emerging industrial technology. Emerging, but not yet established. Right. Toby Ord did a, um, him and some of his colleagues did an estimate on what was the chances of humans bringing about their own extinction in the 20th century? Their best estimate was about one in a hundred. One in a hundred. And so, uh, just so I can know we're on the timeline, Toby Yord, he was a philosopher around what time? Today. Oh, today, now. Okay, yeah, yeah I see. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if these guys were talking about this, you know, back in 100 years ago or something. Oh, no, no, this is after the fact. Okay. So they looked back at the 20th century. There was a lot, which I don't want to get into. I, I would, hi- if anybody's interested in the topic of ex- existential threats, I would highly recommend his book. It's it's very well done. He narrate, narrates himself. He's an Australian guy. He's yeah, so he's got a cool accent. Yeah, and he's he's very articulate. But he goes into a lot of the where the probabilities came from and looking at you know different genuses and different species and how many have gone extinct over time and over what period of time and wow. So there's mathematical probabilities put in, but there's also caveats. So in the 20th century. You know, we had the we had the arms race for one thing. Had the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. There were yes m- more. We had reached a point in the 20th century where we could have potentially destroyed ourselves. And he thinks that the closest estimate is about one in a hundred going into the 20th century that that would have happened by the end of the century. I see. Okay. Fortunately, we didn't roll that one. Yeah. In the 21st century. The same group puts it at one in six. Wow. My God. (laughs) So that's where it starts to get a little bit scary, and that's where the ERS comes in. ERS? Uh, The Existential Risk Studies. Oh, okay. So the, the, the paper that I primarily used for the notes of the introduction to ERS was something called, it was, the paper was called a, a, the ripples on the great sea of life. 
a brief history of existential threats. And it was written by S.J. Beard, who is a, um, he's at the Center of Study for Existential Risk at Cambridge, and Phil Torres, uh, who's at Leibniz University in Hanover, Germany. It's not that long of a read. It's about 39 pages, but it goes into the history. Not bad. Yeah, cool. On, on I mean, where we came from. It's a big topic. <laughs> yeah, and I like the title, the, the Ripples on the Great Sea of Life. And it comes from the premise that we face global challenges of such magnitude that, by comparison, all of the setbacks and tragedies of human history are but ripples on the surface of the Great Sea of Life. Oh, that's amazing. That was a quote from Nick Bostrom. But if all we have ever known are such ripples... How can we understand, let alone stop, the tidal waves that are threatening to engulf us? Sure. Yeah. Are the, it's like, are those tidal waves events in time that can be avoided, maybe? Can they be avoided? Or are we going to just get sucked right into their gravity? <laughs> <laughs> Hit that event horizon or we're gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like once the, once, once the computer becomes a, you know, reaches singularity and, and becomes self-aware, we're done. Maybe, maybe. Unless somebody's got their hand on the off switch. Sure. <laughs> or can, Which goes back know. to our conversation at dinner. What are you doing, Dave? Yes, what are you, yes, what are you doing? <laughs> so people... Alexa, are, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> people in, in the cultures throughout history have speculated about the possibility of, of global catastrophes, and you know, including the, the apocalypse and, and the end of the world. And Yeah, I mean, it seems like the end of the world has been nigh forever. Thousands <laughs> of years. Yeah. I, I think we, you made that comment <laughs> in, in one of the God episodes. It's like, I may have, yeah. It's like we've lived, we've lived through three nighs or something. Yeah. Our, <laughs> and the first story that may have ever been written down this, I guess this could be a confrontational point for anybody out there. The, the first story ever written down seems to have been the uh, Mesopotamian mm. flood myth, mm-hmm. which was adopted by the Israelites and put into the Old Testament in Genesis as Noah and the Ark and that flood narrative. Right. So, you know, f- for those of you who are devout followers of the Old Testament, yeah, you got to circle that square because that story comes from Mesopotamia far before uh, the, the writing of the Old Testament. And in fact, what it looks like, what, what the theory is, is that the Mesopotamian flood myth actually came from when the Black Sea formed. Uh-huh. And when that, when that land bridge collapsed and the waters from the Mediterranean just rushed in and completely wiped out. You know, I don't know how many people area. lived in the area, but there were civilizations in the area. If there had been anybody standing around that happened to survive that, it would have been, holy shit, something just flooded the world, and I'm the only person left alive. So yeah, so most of the stories, and that happened, that happened around, around 7,500 years ago, I believe, 7,000 7, to 7,500 years ago. So again, if the Old Testament was written 3,000 years ago to 2,500 years ago, you know, it predates that by another 2,500, uh, 3,000 3, years. years. Yeah. So the, it's a long time. It is, <laughs> it is a long time. I mean, for us. Yeah, for us. For the planet Earth, I mean, it's probably just like, what? I just got here. I just woke up. Yeah, so most of the, you know, the historical, the ancient history in today's apocalypse scenarios were primarily tied to religion. Mm-hmm. And in the religious context, it wasn't really the extinction of humanity. There was, well, I mean, Adam and Eve wasn't, but that wasn't from, a, you know, a, an end of days, but Noah and the Ark. I think it was Noah and his family, basically eight people left alive in the entire world, mm-hmm. which is well below what is required to actually repopulate humanity. You know, the, the estimate on what it would take in terms of quantity of people evenly split between male and female is anywhere at the low end of 500 to the high end of possibly 10,000. In order for the babies to be born, to come out, develop, have procreate, more babies, procreate, have more, yeah. yeah, not get messed up through inbreeding, right? Because uh, in genetic, yeah, in, the, in, in both the stories of of Adam and Eve, and in the stories of and the myth of you know the flood myth with Noah and the Ark, mm-hmm. there would have had to have been a significant amount of ancestral relations in order to procreate and propagate humanity or across the world again. Mm-hmm. Is that why we're all insane? It, permit, it could be. I, <laughs> it could no, just be. Kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> What's interesting is, yeah, I had just kind of made an, a little bit of an assumption going into this that 
this was a well, this was a topic that probably went back to things you know people such as Aristotle and Plato that sat around and debated on the end of days and but existential studies on the scale of an irreversible extinction or destruction of civilization didn't really appear until the late 18th century early 19th century okay and how how did it manifest so the first re, the first way that it manifested it was a, a French zoologist named Georges Cuvier in, in the early 19th century. He discovered that bones they had found in Siberia and North America that they had thought were elephants were actually mammoths and mastodons. Hmm. And until that time, no one in the science community thought that any species had ever gone extinct. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So the concept of extinction didn't exist. But the fact that he found the bones of mammoths and mastodons, and we no longer had mammoths and mastodons on the planet, brought to the attention of the community that a species could, in fact, go extinct. Interesting. So that was the first concern. There was also, prior to that, there was was a belief that there was uh, what's called an ontological gap Hmm. uh, between humans and nature. And ontology... Is a, is a branch of metaphysics that gets into the study of reality. I think mm. we, you know, we in the Genesis episode, you know, what's real, what's not, what does it mean to, to have consciousness and to exist? And Sure, yeah. So prior to that, there, there was, and a lot of this would have been driven by religious belief, was that humans were separate from nature. Mm-hmm. You know, we were our own beings. Yeah. The rest of the world was... The rest of the world. Yeah, humans supernatural. You know, we're beyond everything. <laughs> but when Charles Darwin um, in 1859 came out with On the Origin of Species and scientifically showed, you know, beyond a doubt that evolution is, uh, you know, a fact about the history of all Earth originating life. So it metaphysically integrated humans into the natural world. So we realized basically at that point that, no, our fate is tied to the fate of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good thought. We're, we, you know, we, <laughs> don't, we don't exist outside of that realm. We're, yeah. we're all here. We all share this planet, and we face the same threats. And It's our planet. Yeah, and then, you know, religious ex- eschatology, we talked about the doomsday scenario stories, and that's, you know, religious, uh, that's called religious eschatology. Hmm. That monopolized the way of, of thinking you know, throughout most of history. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 1960 that, you know, the, the emergence of the atheist movement, where people started pushing down religious eschatology mm-hmm. and looking mm-hmm. around going, you know, this, this shit, this potential threat is actually real. Yeah. It's not something of, you know, children's fairy tales that I you know, read in the Old Testament. This is real stuff. So let's pay attention. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, the... The thought process might have been dominating the the mainstream hive mind, but clearly there were still people thinking outside of the box and doing it in a dangerous way. Because if you were going against the church, well, you you know get burned at the stake and tortured, and you know all these incentives to think as they did. There was a lot of incentive to be compliant and obedient. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the one that I found interesting is that there was no agreement within the scientific community about the existence of any potential kill mechanism hmm. to bring about our extinction that could annihilate all of humanity until the second half of the 20th century. And it wasn't until the 1980s that that theory was really confirmed, um, and it's called the Alvarez hypothesis, and we'll go over that a little bit. But mm-hmm. you know, as technology started to advance prior to the, the middle 20th century, yeah, we had technology, but we didn't have anything on the on the scale that could wipe out humanity. Sure. But as we as we started to emerge and evolve, that that situation quickly changed. There there were early poets. Um, Lord Byron was mm. apparently in the early nineteenth century. He was fascinated with uh, comets mm. mm-hmm. and what could happen. You know, if a big comet hit the you know hit the Earth, how much would it destroy? And uh, and then Mary Shelley. Who wrote Frankenstein? Of course, yes. Yeah, she also published a book in 1826 called Last Man. Hmm. And it was where a lone survivor, interestingly enough, in the late 21st century, uh, from a global plague, tries to come to grips with his fate. Ah, yes. Those stories are cool. 
I, I read a book, uh, Earth Abides. That was kind of one of those. <laughs> so this is where it really started to propagate. It started to propagate first in science fiction, mm-hmm. and then it started to propagate in science. Very cool. The, the first known novel to mention a techno- technological cause of the end of humanity was a Jules Verne hmm. a novel, five weeks, five weeks in a Balloon, which he published in 1862. So again, this is 100 years, 80 years before you know, World War II and, and the atomic bombs. But you know, he was already thinking about technology uh, being the end of humanity. But you know, a lot of other science fiction writers adopted uh, the same theme. H.G. Wells, Arthur C. Clarke, and remember Arthur C. Clarke was the one who any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Isaac Asimov. Is magic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and many others. They, they really played a significant role in, in bringing to the public's attention the threat of existential risks. So the first significant concern evolved in 1945 after the United States bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. And that was when Robert, when the Manhattan Project concluded and they detonated the first warhead, there's a great quote by Robert Oppenheimer, who was, I think he was the director of the project. And he said, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Oh, yes, I've heard that. I've seen that in memes. Yeah, it's from, <laughs> it, it was a, it's an old Hindu quote. From, you know, oh, shoot. Yeah, Vishnu was talking to a prince, and I don't remember the whole story, but. Wow. But he just, when he saw the bomb, when he saw the detonation, he made a comment that some people were laughing, some people were crying, some people were just in shock. And the first thing that came to his mind was that that? quote from (laughs) Hindu scripture. Wow. Man. Yeah, what a moment. (laughs) Two years after the bombs went off, the science community created the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. They they created the Bulletin of, of Atomic Scientists right after. And two years after that is they created the Doomsday Clock, oh, which wow. I'm sure you're aware of. Yeah, the big red dial, you know, that they move closer to midnight. Uh, it's during- almost comical, <laughs> but it, it's conveying a message from the science community on the potential threat to humanity. I just remember it from the Watchmen. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, oh, no, we're at seven seconds to midnight. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, we're back to 32 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> But their, their paranoia versus their pronoia. <laughs> yeah, so the bulletin has a board of sponsors who come up with the, the assessment that determines where we should have that clock. And, and the board has had some pretty impressive people on it. I already talked about Robert Oppenheimer and uh, Albert Einstein. Stephen Hawking was on the board. Uh, so was Lawrence Krauss, Arthur C. Clarke. Mm. again, mm. and many other you know, Nobel laureates and just well-recognized scientists. And they're the ones that really convey the information to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and that team then determines where they set the clock. So it was originally set, originally set for five minutes to midnight. No, it was set to seven minutes to midnight Okay, when it, when it was first introduced, introduced to the world. It moved to five minutes to midnight in 1953 after both the United States and the Soviet Union detonated the first thermonuclear weapons. Its furthest point was 16 minutes to midnight, which was in 1991 at the end of the Cold War. Hmm. It moved to 100 seconds to midnight in January 2020 amid concerns over climate change and national leaders undermining major nuclear arms deals. Oh, yeah. And today, it still remains at... 100 seconds. 100 seconds to midnight. Whoa, we haven't dialed it back yet. No, and there was some original... uh, There was some initial thoughts on dialing it back when Trump was voted out of office. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, after Biden took office, the the initial thought was, okay, we can dial this back now. So the science community had a a lot of concern over the stability of of Donald Trump. Um, However... You know, they while they thought that was, uh, you know, Biden's interest in renewing nuclear arms treaties, you know, the rest of the world is still a mess. And the, the January 6th insurrection uh, Capitol riot, you know, really mm. caused the United States a lot of damage with PR around the world. Oh, sure. And today we're no longer the, the shining beacon for the merits of democracy that we once were. So it creates a lot of concern in the international community. I but and, I bet. <laughs> and, and I'm sorry, guys. Basically, what it led to is the feeling that if the United States 
could undergo such a tragedy, then no rational democracy in the world is safe from the radical elements of society. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the United States is, as I understand, it's supposed to kind of be that shining beacon of hope and excellence and all that stuff. And Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and if it, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, mm, there's so much there. <laughs> there's so much there, but... Uh, but then, then after that, yeah. Yeah, the environmental concerns, we, we already said, you know, after World War II, we had the, the technology concerns, environmental concerns started to grow after that uh, and have steadily grown over the decades. You know, population growth, pollution, soil erosion, chemicals, ozone depletion. Oh, yeah. And then other existential threats. You know, you're not afraid of what you don't know. You, know, you fear what you don't understand, but you're not really, you're not afraid of what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And as we started to learn more and more, you know, different possibilities started to open up, uh, you know, negative <laughs> possibilities with negative ramifications started to open up. Hmm. Such as? Well, the first one, I mentioned the Alvarez hypothesis earlier. Mm-hmm. So even though the science community had a concern over nuclear weapons after World War II mm-hmm. and during the arms race, Nobody really understood the full ramifications of, of all-out like, nuclear all out and how it would destroy. I mean, it, it it destroys down to the particle of everything, like soil and plants. And so the worst part of it, you know, we knew we had an idea. We had we we knew fairly well with significant certainty that the dinosaurs had become extinct around sixty-six million years ago. Okay, but nobody knew why. And then it was uh, a geologist and his son, Alvarez, who was digging in an area and noticed that there was a significant amount of iridium in the KT barrier, which is around the time the dinosaurs went extinct, 66 million years ago. The KT barrier, that's what that is? Yeah, it's the Cretaceous, it's the Cretaceous tertia era, the Cretaceous tertia extinction event. Okay. So the fact that there is iridium in small quantities isn't rare. So there, there is iridium on earth, but it is only in very small quantities. The only time you see iridium in significant quantities is from asteroids or meteor strikes. Mm. And there was a significant amount of iridium at the layer of around 66 million years ago. And they started to go around the globe and look at other unearthed layers of the same era and saw the same iridium deposits. Hmm. So the only conclusion that could come out of that is around 66 million years ago, there was a significant impact of an asteroid. And and considering how much iridium was deposited, uh, they knew it would have, and the fact that it was global, they knew it would have had to have been a significant and eventually they determined that it was around six miles in wow. diameter. So wow. it, was, it was huge. That gave the science community the understanding, especially after they found the crater. Uh, it's the Chicxulub crater in, in Mexico. Hmm. And that gave them the understanding of nuclear winter. So an asteroid of that size hitting the Earth would have thrown... Well, first off, the, the, heat, the heat from the explosion killed everything within around a 600-mile radius Yeah, instantaneously. And then it threw up so much hot molten rock that it ended up raining down around the world and just setting fire and burning animals to death all around the world. Hot molten rock, not to mention the hot vapor of the rocks, too. It, and then the most significant part was the amount of soot that it put into the atmosphere. So the soot that went into the atmosphere was sufficient enough that it basically, it was above the clouds, so rain had no impact on it, and it just sat there, and it circled the globe, and it blocked out a large percentage of the sunlight. Wow. That was nuclear winter that followed. Yes. So after 1980, you know, the, the fear of asteroid impacts and then the fear of nuclear weapons extended you know, significantly simply because of the effects of nuclear winter, which wasn't understood prior to that. Hmm. Wow. And then other existential threats that have emerged, artificial intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> biotechnology and bioweapons, nuclear wars we just talked about, nanotechnology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nanotechnology. Oh, my <laughs> God. I mean, it goes into the – it was science fiction, and it was such a bad movie. It was this movie Gamer. Never see that? No, I have not. Oh, man, it, it starred the, uh, that dude that um, – he, he's in that show Dexter – Michael C. Hall? What the oh, is it? Name? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's this, like, 
billionaire gamer tycoon that developed uh, nanobot technology, and he basically took over the whole world and could just bend every anybody's mind to his own will as long as they breathed in this dust. <laughs> they should combine that somehow with Dexter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of was like on that line. Yeah, you know, and he'd like blow this dust in people's faces, or he, you know, get them exposed to it somehow, and uh, could, through the nanobots, you know, link in with their minds and essentially make them, you know, shoot a loved one or you know jump off a cliff or whatever. I'm not saying that's how nanotechnology works. I'm just saying that movie was weird. <laughs> <laughs> Other emerging threats: climate change, gamma ray bursts. Gamma ray was a, was a big one. Yeah. Solar flares, geoengineering, um, high energy physics experiments. And Neil deGrasse Tyson, he cracks himself up every time he tells this joke. He, and I don't remember who he heard it from, but he said, yeah, the theory in the science community that the world's going to, when we finally destroy the universe, it's going to be two physicists sitting in the room looking at the control panel and one, the last words ever spoken are going to be, yeah, sure, it worked fine that way, but what if we try it this way? <laughs> <laughs> Galactic power outage. Or if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? <laughs> so if one believes that future could contain astronomical numbers of super-enhanced post-humans... I like the concept. Whoa, Super yeah. enhanced post humans. Yeah. And a galaxy spanning techno paradise, then we should care about every possibility or every possible event that could preclude humanity from achieving that goal. I'm it, not sure what that means. So if we can sit down and think, all right, one day, five million years in the future, we're going to have achieved all of these outstanding technological advancements that gives us long life, good health, happy communities. Um, you know, we have population growth under control. We have control over our own existential threats. We are interplanetary species that can, you know, move from one star to the next if need be as that star starts to die out. Yeah, wow. If like, we think that at some point in the future, that is where we want to get to, mm -hmm. then we have to be aware of any possible threat that could preclude future. us from reaching that future. I see, yeah. So Nick Bostrom again, I keep bringing up Nick <laughs> Bostrom. He's a great guy. Uh, he has a four-part classification of existential risks. Okay. According to their outcome. So he's taken existential risk and he's categor categorized them by bangs, crunches, shrieks, and whimpers. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> so these are risks. Remember, these aren't, out these aren't the desired outcome. So we have our desired outcome for the long-term evolution of humanity. These are the risks to that. And the first one is a bang. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Either an accident or we do something to ourselves to completely wipe out humanity in the process. We, mm. hit, the, we, we hit that great filter and it's of our own doing. Mm. Crunches are the potential of humanity to develop into uh, a post-humanity, into that super techno-humanity, is permanently thwarted, although human life continues in some form. Mm. Whatever form that is. You know, just some, but it is impossible to achieve that goal because we've done significant enough damage to ourselves or it's been inflicted upon us by some accident that, you know, an external existential risk and then, that we can no longer reach our desired outcome. Yeah. Rendering us incapable of just leaving it to fantasy pretty much. <laughs> or we're back down to 10,000 people in the world or 100,000 people scattered over the globe and you know, no age. food and we're foraging and... You know, maybe we could claw our way back up again, but the fact that we did it once, you know, even if we did spend the next, say we could do it faster, you know, we've reached where we are today in about 200,000 years. So say some remnants of society was left that the survivors of whatever happened to wipe out humanity or most of humanity mm -hmm. passed on knowledge, writing, information, the possibility of the future to their children, and then that propagated down, you know, so maybe we would achieve the point of where we're at today, not in 200,000 years, but maybe in 50,000 years. Mm -hmm. But then what's to say at 50,000 years, we don't do it all again. Sure. So shrieks, mm. so, Nick's, <laughs> so his definition of a shriek is some form of post-humanity is attained. So we've reached partial super techno post-humanity. Okay. 
but it's only a fraction of what was possible or desired for whatever reason, and it's limited. Hmm. And then a whimper is we do achieve post-humanity, but it's and it's a completely different outcome than what was desired. Oh, it's not a utopian shit fantasy, went wrong. but it's a total hellscape. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a hellscape. Shit <laughs> went wrong, and it's irreversible because oh. <laughs> you know you have authoritarian AI in charge who oh, yeah. basically holds the gun to your head and is just like, do as I say now. And outthinks <laughs> you by 58 steps every time you're coming up with yeah. an idea to get, you know, <laughs> to break free of your bondage and you uh. know, they've already figured it out. So. <laughs> so, and this is something we discussed a couple days ago. You started to bring it up was, you know, what can we do about existential threats or whatever and how to categorize those and yeah. And how to combat them. Yeah, that's exactly that's where you were going with it and there you know there are three things that the uh, community tries to you know put in our minds that we should be aware of and the first one is prevention mm-hmm. the second one is response and then the third one is resilience let's go into those I mean, so let's... prevention is just that it's you know ensuring that events that could precipitate a global catastrophe don't occur. Yeah, just you know. knocking that possibility right off the table. Right. We have to identify hazards. We have to understand their dynamics. Uh, we have to foster cooperation on you know matters of safety through global institutions or customs that benefit you know society as a whole. Yeah, like maintaining Chernobyl. Yeah, stuff or, like that, and planting more trees, and or sharing the technology on how to avoid Chernobyl happening happening in the first place. That's kind of what I mean. So yeah. we're you know we're we're a ways away from this. We you know that's kind of where we have to have to get to. So you know there's a there's a couple we have self defeating mechanism mechanisms in our society for preventing existential threats, and a lot of them is monetary. A lot of it is monetary and power. Oh, sure. And, you know, by maintaining Chernobyl, I mean not maintaining like, yeah, let's keep destroying ourselves, but maintaining like that huge incident that happened that's going to require maintenance for right. and maybe able tens to, of thousands of years or whatever. And maybe to be able to deal with Russians that are invading to not fire tank shells at it. You yeah, know, that's, yeah. Things like that. It's, that's just, we're, we, are such, we are so messed up. As Dude, I don't know, man. Yeah. <laughs> Enough with this being polite and shit. <laughs> and, you know, getting, getting nations to work together on existential threats right now is damn near impossible. I mean, I, I'm very glad that we have the Future of Life Institute and the Future of Humanity Institute. And I'm very glad that the science community is starting to push this and that some world leaders are listening. But Toby Ord brought up a couple points. He brought up actually quite a few, but there were two that kind of stuck out with me. And his comment was, is I'm you know, that he was writing his book while sitting in the UK. And the UK has a population of 70 million people. So that's enough to put it in the list of some of the more populous countries in the world. It's only 1% of the global population. Wow. So if the United Kingdom invested a significant amount of its GDP towards, let's just say climate change, Sure. Let's just say to, you know, reducing their carbon footprint, to eliminating fossil fuels, to having safe, clean, renewable energy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It would cost them a significant amount of money as a nation to do it, but they would only have one one hundredth of an impact That's incredible. on the global scale. Wow. When you because, put it like that. <laughs> so a lot of other countries can just sit back and benefit from the effort and the money and the time right. that other countries are dedicating to it. Even if, you know, the United States, if we did it, it's one twentieth of mm-hmm. the world population. China would be one fifth of the world's population, one fifth, one sixth. So you really need to have strong international cooperation. Well, and how do you incentivize people to participate in something like that? You know, I mean... It's tough because we also live in a political world and politicians tend to operate by two, two time cycles. One is the duration in between elections and the other is the duration in between news releases. Mm-hmm. Anything that goes above and beyond that scope they don't want to focus a lot of their time and attention to it. We are structured to be a very short-term focused myopic society, and it's scary as hell. E- even people that I talk to, they they understand the possibility. And if you're just simply talking about existential threats, they might have concerns. But then if that conversation gears into, well, maybe we could do it if we allocated this much money and this much time and we worked with it. 
we don't want to work with that country. I don't want my taxes to go up. Yeah, and, it starts to switch into those political pitfalls where you start shutting yourself down from ideas because one person said it or one party said it. So if you're not a part of that party, you can't entertain those ideas, blah, 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 blah. The world destroys itself, but at least we have someone to blame for it. That's not us, right? Well, what's maddening (laughs) about it is the sheer selfishness of it is maddening because we, we have everything that we have today because of the, the work and the effort and the suffering and the gains and the sacrifices of every generation before us. Mm -hmm. We should be willing to put forth that same kind of effort for every generation after us. Yeah. We need to leave this place better than when we got it. Yeah. And that that time's going to come. It comes for every one of us in an average of 72 to 78 years. It's our life expectancy. But we focus too much on our short-term interest on what benefits us. And we don't spend enough time thinking about what benefits our children or our children's children and investing for that. You get hammered all the time. You have kids, you need to start putting money in savings for for college. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, great. But what if we start putting money into systems that help them outside of college when, you know, as, as a society, when they're much older. Oh, sure. And nobody wants to invest the time and energy. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, how do we, instead of just giving our power over to politicians and being like, solve our problems, you know, how do we as individuals make ourselves better in order to make everyone better? I don't know. We need a United Federation of Planets. We need a United, I mean, we have the United Nations, but the United Nations is, yeah, they're, they're not, a force of authority. They're, you know, they try to be, a, they're at best, they're a force of influence. Right. Yeah. And we need to be influencing in the right direction. We need to have our scientists around the globe working more closely together. Many of them already do, but the politicians for the countries that those scientists represent need to have some level of obligation to at least pursues the to look at the opportunities to pursue some of the recommendations in this area Mm. you know whether we have a international committee of existential risks that you know every country has you know one or two members that come together and their word has you know more influence than just a suggestion to some politicians it's like no we need to work towards these goals and you know, obviously, there needs to be a high level of ethics that's involved in all of these things, too. I think with every science committee, there's, there, you know, there should be an ethics panel. Yeah. So, you know, we have yeah, to... Like we, we can to do make... something, but should we do something? Yeah, but... Yeah, yeah, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Yeah. <laughs> is that Dr. Malcolm again? I'm not sure. Hmm. I think it is. I think, <laughs> I think it is. It's, it might be. Yes, it yeah. was from Jurassic <laughs> Yeah, it was. When they were talking, he was like, yeah, nobody ever set the thought that just because you could do it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then they set off, you know, a whole global pandemic with dinosaurs running wild, not pandemic, but epidemic. <laughs> a mess. A mess. <laughs> so that's basically the introduction that I had for existential risks. I just thought that it was probably important before we jumped into it till we started to understand, you know, a little bit of the history of it and Oh yeah. And also understanding that this is fairly new and one of our God episodes the you know, a, a quote from Dinesh D'Souza was brought up where he tried to use as proof of, you know, the existence of God starting everything off 6,000 years ago. I think James had used an airplane taxiing around the runway for 100,000 years and then all of a sudden in the last 6,000 years it just took off and they, you know, Dinesh D'Souza couldn't understand that, but it's blatantly obvious. And I, I think he does understand it because he's not a stupid guy. I just think he's a biased guy. I think he's very much mired in a, his subjective beliefs, but as I said, every technological advancement brings about the next technological advancement that much faster. Mm-hmm. You know, we were around for, say, say 200,000 years ago. It wasn't until 10,000 years ago that we had the agricultural revolution. Mm-hmm. And up until that time, most humans were foragers, hunters, gatherers, foragers. They went around in small groups scraping out a living, trying to find food and sustenance to live their 21 to 24 years of miserable life. Yeah, and then it probably having to fend off, you know, the uh, cannibalistic predators too. <laughs> mm, yeah, and it wasn't until around 10,000 years ago when the first civilization started to form that people started to come together. Once people started to come together, they could share ideas, 
and concepts and thoughts and work together and help each other. Communities started to rapidly grow. Writing came in. Writing allowed people to pass wisdom on among, you know, from generation, generation to generation. And that was really the first boom. And things took off and cities started to grow. You know, there were communities of, you know, 100,000 people and up, you know, five, six, 7,000 years ago, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, it's a lot of people. Yeah, it's a city today. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know we have bigger numbers now today, which is a really lot of people. <laughs> but. And then we had a stumbling block around 2,000 years ago when in most of the Western world, the church took power and pretty much stumped enlightenment for 1,500 years. But that was, you know, humanity broke away from that around the 15th century. And in the mid-19th century, you had the, um, the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, and the Industrial Revolution just led to the next thing. So, you know, then yeah. the scientific revolutions. And then and things start to grow exponentially faster. What we just need to make sure is, as Carl Sagan said, our wisdom doesn't grow at a commensurate level to maintain pace with our technological advancements. And that's what we need to be aware of. And that's where we need to have the international community cooperating with each other and understanding these things. And That way we avoid catastrophe. So some of the additional sources that I, I mentioned, the Future of Humanity Institute and the Future of Life Institute, uh, Max Tegmark, who is a, uh, I believe he's an astrophysicist at um, MIT, and I listened to a, a couple of his YouTube episodes, mm-hmm. his ep- episode presentations that he gave. He's really good. Cool. He's called Mad Max. Mad Max? Okay. <laughs> yeah, Mad Max. So. <laughs> and I have additional sources for the next episode, but that's it for the introduction. Oh, neat. Cool. Wow. Well... Yeah, sweet, because I got a couple things here in my notes to check out. Just off the top of my head, I'll do a plug, too, for Ecosia ORG. Have you heard of that? No. I told you about Ecosia. Oh, yes, E-C-O-S-I-A. Yeah, it's a uh, search engine uh, like Google, um, and uh, what they do with a share of their profits is uh, they plant trees um, all across the world in different areas that can use it and they have partners that they do that with um you you can check out that resource but if you want to just not have to change much about your day-to-day life instead of using google check out ecosia plant some trees (laughs) i I bookmarked them on my my browser yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think google deleted it probably yeah (laughs) and if anybody has any uh, questions or comments or 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 questions that they would like to uh, us to address in a upcoming existential threat episode please feel free to to contact chris and i directly you can go to our website at irrationaldiscourse.com and just click on the contact us page and and send us your message and your question and we'll be uh, happy to get to it heck yeah all right that's it sweet love you man love you cheers Thank you for listening to this episode of the Irrational Discourse podcast. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send us an email at debate at irrationaldiscourse.com, or you can contact us directly through our website at www.irrationaldiscourse.com. Please include your name and location if you'd like a shout out for your contribution. We only ask for and strive to give in return a little love, acceptance, and mutual respect.